Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. I'm Marnie Vinge, and this is Irioki. Join me and my friends as we explore the darker side of the Sooner State. All right. I'm Marnie Vinge, and this is Irioki. And I'm here today at a very special location that I have wanted to come to to do an episode for quite some time. So I'm really excited to be here. And I'm with Ashley Mason Burns Mearshart, right? That's right. And okay, <laughs> it's a mouthful. Yes, it is. <laughs> and we are um, at the Osteology Museum, which I believe, um, is it called Skeletons, the Osteology? Yes, yeah, so we okay. have Skeletons Museum of Osteology, and we have two locations. So we just, sometimes it's called the Skeleton Museum uh, for locals here in Oklahoma City. It's been known as the Museum of Osteology mm-hmm. for quite some time. But when we opened up our second museum, which I know we'll talk about, we decided to kind of rebrand that. So now it's Skeletons Museum of Osteology. Okay. Okay, that's what I was thinking, because when I, when I looked on Facebook, I was like, hmm, I wonder if they... They changed that. So, but um, the first time that I came here was actually in 2000, I believe it was 17. My cousin Andreas, who is from Norway, was with me and he wanted to take a trip to Oklahoma from Norway. And um, one of the things that he wanted to do was just have like the American experience. And he was like, so just show me things that are close to you that are around you you know, that kind of thing. And I was like, what are we going to do? And <laughs> so we, the first place we went was here yeah. and he thought it was super cool. So that was, that was awesome. There's only two of these in the whole world. So mm-hmm. it's awesome that you guys came. Yeah, for sure. He really, he really enjoyed it. And I enjoyed it too. I was like, um, I was such a science nerd growing up. Like I, um, my role model was Dana Scully and when I was in, like, sixth grade, they were like, draw a picture of what you want to be when you grow up. Yeah. So, like, I draw this picture of this woman in a, like, white coat hovering over a body on a table wow. with, like, what looks like a knife, but it was actually a scalpel. Sure. Like, and my teacher was like, um, what is this? And I, like, explained it. It's so often, like, scientist and serial killer. Right. Sometimes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like that. It's like that meme um, of the little duck that's like got the duct tape on it and it's got all the knives next to it. And the person's like, my kid's going to be a little doctor when they grow up. And somebody comments is like, no, your kid's going to be a little serial uh-huh. killer. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. So um, go ahead and tell me some of the history of how sure. this got started and how long it's been around mm-hmm. and how you came to be here. So uh, the Museum of Osteology, what we study here is we study bones. So it's the museum of the study of bones. So that's osteo is a Greek word for bone, and ology, of course, means the study of. So we're dedicated to that study. We mostly focus on extant species, and a lot of people might not have ever heard of extant species, which is kind of ironic because I, extant actually describes the species that are alive right now, mm-hmm. so modern species. So we don't focus on dinosaurs or too much on animals that had existed in the past, and that is because all of our skeletons are actually real that are on display. So this museum in Oklahoma City 
has 350 real skeletons on display. There's about 800 specimens total on display for guests to see. In Orlando, Florida, which is our other museum, our second museum that opened up in 2015, that museum has 500 real skeletons with several hundred more specimens on display. That is so cool. Yeah, and that's just a fraction of the collection. So even if you visited this museum before, you might not know that it's actually a private collection. This is all owned by one person who actually started collecting skulls when he was just seven years old. And this is just part of that collection. It's just a fraction of it. Uh, we have a, over 6,500 specimens in the collection. Uh, that is catalog specimens. So including uncatalogued specimens, we have about 7,000 specimens. Uh, we do get a lot of requests from researchers and students and photographers to come view the collection. So people do have that option. Uh, there's an option on our website to come fill out our collections access request. So we do get a lot of requests um, from uh, students that would be studying maybe comparative anatomy or someone who specializes in one area. Uh, I know last Last year, I showed someone, they were just interested in anteater hands and development of the muscle around the bone and looking at mm -hmm. those attachment sites. Um, we also have students that are interested in 3D scanning some of the specimens. Uh, so we do uh, kind of a lot of different requests for seeing the collection. But the specimens on display, they all come to us from zoos, nature preserves, sanctuaries, and aquariums. So no animal that you're going to see displayed in either museum or in the collection would ever be hurt or harmed to create the specimen. They're solely based off of donations that we receive from those facilities. So instead of uh, disposing of the animal's carcass after it passed away, they would be able to donate to us. And that's where we take over with our process and the flesh-eating beetles. And anybody that's ever been to this museum before probably remembers the flesh-eating beetles. Yeah. That usually is one of the first things they remember. They say, well, don't you guys have those bugs there right. that eat the, the meat? And we say, yes, of course, those are our hardest workers. <laughs> <laughs> they never stop. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. So, um, and you were telling me right before we got on the Mike, kind of a cool story about how you came to be here. Mm -hmm. So if you want to share that, that sure, would be... Absolutely. Uh, well, I've been a huge fan of the company, and if you've ever, uh, you might not have heard of our parent company by name, but you most likely have seen something they've been involved with. Their name is Skulls Unlimited International. So that is the original company that Jay Villamoret, the owner and founder of the museum, had started. He started that company in 1986 with his wife, and they actually had just first started that company just out of their residence, out of their house, selling skulls to local teachers, university professors, uh, art students who wanted a real specimen to make their sketches off of, or even uh, someone who needed a skull for maybe home decor, they would be able to provide them uh, those specimens. Well, 33 years later, that company is now the world's leading suppliers of osteological specimens. So that's how I originally heard of the company from Skulls Unlimited. And I was uh, so interested in Jay and the story that I'm going to tell about how he found his first specimen and how the collection really got started and his interest in skulls and skeletons began. But I was actually in Orlando. Orlando, Florida, uh, finishing my bachelor's degree when the announcement was made uh, that they were going to open up another museum. So I had followed this one on social media and Skulls Unlimited, and they had made this announcement. And I was just hoping it would be Orlando, and it actually ended up being Orlando. So I immediately started applying, letting them know I'd volunteer, I'd do anything uh, just to be a part of the experience and bringing them to Orlando. I just thought it was so great. And uh, so they often bring that up that I should be paying them to be here because yeah. I started out as kind of just a big fan. But uh, and I actually started working at the museum and then I started um, 
teaching in the education department, and now I'm the education director for both locations. So I supervise the education teams we have because we have tons of groups coming into the museum, field trips, we do special events with adults that I hope we'll get to talk about later because they're so popular. Our forensics night is just Mm -hmm. incredibly popular. Um, But that's how I first got involved with the museum. So every day I just love being here and learning so much every single day. That is, oh And being my surrounded gosh. by other people who have the same interest and yeah. level of passion that I do. Oh, yeah. And uh, I just want to mention, like, the room we're in right now. So this is your office. <laughs> yeah. And sitting, we're sitting at a desk, and around us are all of these, what would these, like, crates? These are cases. Like, cases? These, mm-hmm, these okay. are uh, museum specimen cases. Okay. So these are, uh, have several shelving units inside of them. You can pull out the shelves and see all of the specimens lined up in them. So there might be, in just a single case... Uh, almost a hundred specimens, depending on the size of them, and skeletons. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, and I got to see the the tigers only, like <laughs> the box back there, which is really really cool. Um, yeah, I can't imagine getting to come here every day for work. That is so cool. It's just totally normal to yeah, us, like yeah. I said in the museum. But uh, the what I think is incredible when I see this museum collection. I think about the work that goes into every single specimen. I had started, uh, when I was in college, started cleaning roadkill specimens mm-hmm. and finding you know animals that had passed away or maybe a friend's pet passed away, and they actually allowed me to process that animal. And there's a lot of trial and error um, when it comes to that, but there's actually a lot of resources online and books written about processing skeletons and how to put them together. But when I see some of the specimens, I think, wow, that was so much work. And every time I get to see that process and practice it myself and, you know, deflesh and remove the tissue from an animal, it just shows how much work has been put into this collection. That process had to happen 350 separate times just for the skeletons here, not Mm -hmm. even counting the skulls. Uh, When we were in the museum, you got to see the humpback whale skeleton. That skeleton is about 44 feet long. It weighs thousands of pounds. That skeleton took two years just to clean just to assemble the pieces together and to articulate it and hang it and to hang it in the museum and display it it took us up about 700 hours wow just to put together it was 24 consecutive days of work with the team that is that is amazing so when you think about really what they've been able to accomplish at both museums and uh i was mentioning how talented the staff is and Mm -hmm. putting together the skeletons these are people who specialize in this that's what they do every single day and there's no other place in the world that does that Mm -hmm. so what was um you mentioned that you had processed some animals Mm -hmm. when you first got into that what was the first one you did uh well the first skeleton i ever found was uh a red fox and it was was actually on railroad tracks so i should have been a little bit more careful but um i was you know i didn't have any problems but it was a red fox skull and uh it was partially a skeleton too that i actually macerated and maceration is one method that you can use to remove the tissue off of a skeleton uh primarily we use the fleshing beetles uh, but depending on the size and whether the animal's a juvenile or an adult will influence how you process the skeleton. Juvenile animals will tend to have more cartilage built into their skeleton, so you want to be careful with how you process them. The beetles are pretty much good for everything that's smaller than bear-sized or tiger-sized, but when we're talking about whales and humpback whales, uh, you have to use different methods. At the time, I was using maceration because I didn't have access to flesh-eating beetles. I was just kind of doing it as a hobby and just mm-hmm. starting out. So getting uh, an empty, you know, tidy cat's bucket and filling it with water and putting the 
the remains of the carcass in there was kind of the easiest thing for me to do. That tends to go better in warmer temperatures. Okay. Um, my first one was in Kansas. So I'd mm-hmm. spent the whole summer visiting my family there in Kansas from Florida. And I managed to clean my fox uh, just in time to come home to Florida. Yeah. And that was my first one. Uh, one thing, uh, like some bigger ones that I've worked on, one that was really interesting, like I said, it's just a learning, pro- a huge learning process. Oh, Every yeah. single time you get the opportunity uh, was a... Uh, 13-foot Burmese python. Wow. That was a huge, huge snake that um, I had uh, the ability to help deflesh. And that one took us like eight hours, just uh, three people. Here, of course, they do it much quicker, but that mm. was in Florida. Oh, so wow. that one I got to help with. Um, bonobo, chimpanzee, uh, pygmy killer whale. Those mm. are some of the things that I've been able to help with. Okay. And it's great because I actually teach people about it and teach our education team about the process and also the general public. So it's really kind of a training that you can't, would never be able to get anywhere else. And Mm -hmm. just you understand it so much more and all the care it takes and the specialization, really. Yeah. So um, walk me through what that's like. Mm -hmm. What are the different, or first, what are the different ways that you can clean a specimen? So, the process from beginning to end, I'll teach you some vocabulary too okay. that we use because uh, we'll refer to things like defleshing. We call that okay. flensing. Uh, so when an animal dies at a facility and is donated to us, this again would be uh, a zoo, aquarium, rehab, nature preserve, uh, anywhere where the animal would be able to be donated to us, we would receive it as a donation. That donation comes to us as a full carcass. If it has come from a zoo, most of the time they will have completed a necropsy which is the animal version of an autopsy. They actually would take different tissue samples throughout the animal's body. They would also create a cut in the skull called a calvarium cut. So you might actually be able to see that on some of the specimens. It's where they open up the brain case and examine the internal structures, trying to figure out the cause of death. That's very important. Uh, A lot of the animals that receive care uh, in zoological facilities have very strict vet schedules and mm-hmm. those animals are heavily monitored for their health so they're very thorough in completing those um, necropsies but that's something we have to take into account too when we're repairing a skeleton all of the cuts made not just in the skull but throughout the whole body especially maybe even the rib cage we would have to reconstruct that or, or attach it somehow right. but uh, the animal would come to us mostly fully intact in that way a lot of people ask us why we don't keep a lot of pelts or preserve the skin um, that Uh, is not really what we're interested in too much, but a lot of the times that has been uh, maybe damaged somewhere Mm -hmm. along the way. And also maybe if the animal had died on a preserve, uh, it could have been out there in the heat for several hours, which would actually cause the fur to spoil before you could uh, preserve it and then send it off to a taxidermist. So um, the first step would be receiving that carcass after it had already been checked out by the veterinarians. Uh, And And do they mm -hmm. they actually like bring it to you themselves or do they mail it do they we actually for a lot of the facilities here we would actually Mm -hmm. go pick up the specimen bring it back to our facility okay so depending on the size of the animal would depend on what type of transportation we take um i have seen you know a whole uh hippo a whole hippo come in in the back of a truck so we would be able to get that animal and bring it to the facility that's when our specialized technicians take over they would begin uh, removing the animal and bringing it into the processing facility and that's where they um, would be able to have they know they have a plan uh, of action of how they're going to process the animal one method they would use of course is the fleshing beetles mm-hmm. in order to use the fleshing beetles though you need to remove as much tissue as you can ahead of time the beetles just kind of clean up things that we leave behind because that's okay. their role in nature uh, the beetles that we use are actually used in forensic entomology too but um 
that is the branch of zoology dealing with insects and you're trying to figure out a timeline if someone had been killed and you found their body mm-hmm. you would be able to establish a timeline based off of different insect specimens that would be on the on the body so um our beetles would actually come later in that process so okay. our beetles aren't the large scavengers that would be removing most of the tissue they clean up afterwards so we create that same process but artificially in a very controlled environment so we remove the tissue instead of outside in nature where larger right. scavengers would be removing mm-hmm. it then the beetles would come so we uh deflesh or flins the meat right down to the bone and the word flins comes from an old whaling term um so we use flimsy knives or paring knives to take the flesh off just right down to the bone. Then uh, if we're not using that method, we might use the boil method. That's kind of like the idea of a pot roast where over time mm-hmm. <laughs> the meat gets so tender it just kind of falls off the bone. Yeah. That would be reserved for some of the larger animals. Okay. Um, Animals that also have mature skeletons that mm. wouldn't damage the bone. Then you also have uh, the berry method where you let the microbes underground rot the meat off over time. That actually was the method used for the humpback whale skeleton that okay. you saw. But some other whales might be able to be boiled. Um, mm. Some places use maceration for them. What? How big are the boiling it's very tanks, large. Very I large. don't know how okay. big it is exactly, um, like the dimensions, but it's enough to fit a couple horse skeletons okay. inside of it. Okay. So. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That is so cool about the berry thing. I had no idea that that was a method. With that, you kind of run the risk of the ground actually will shift and yeah. you might lose a specimen. Um, sometimes if you leave it for too long, it actually will start to decompose too much oh, and okay. you'll lose bones. Mm-hmm. So that's just one method. After that, depending on which method you use, uh, you might have to degrease the skeleton, which okay. means you have to pull all of the oils and fats out that na- naturally saturate bones. Mm-hmm. You have to draw that out. Some species have have more oily bones than others for example pigs have mm-hmm. um a oilier skeleton or even whales is a much okay. better yeah, example yeah, yeah. of that uh some museums actually have to empty their oil buckets at the end of the night when wow. their whale skeletons drip all day long oh wow we would never have that problem we process them completely yeah. and fully um but i've heard of some other museums and you can actually yeah. if you look at some other museums you can see the the oil start to pool and build up in certain areas. But after that, we would need to uh, whiten and sanitize the bones. This is done using hydrogen peroxide, H2O2. A lot of people think that we bleach the skeletons. Bleach actually breaks down the the collagen that holds the bones together, so we Mm. would never want to do that. With our specimens, we want them to be able to teach for hundreds and hundreds of years from now, so we always try to maintain the integrity of the skeleton no matter what. And then after that process, we might have to pull more grease out again and oils. Uh, but uh, that sanitizing process is done with a very strong peroxide. Okay. Then after that, we go to our articulators. And our articulators actually are the, the technicians that will drill each bone, wire each bone together. So they actually have to know their anatomy really, really well. And they might be putting together something as small as a hummingbird or something as large as... Uh, an African bull elephant that weighed 16,000 pounds in life. Wow. That is, I mean, I just watching from the video out there of like the articulation process, it, I can't even imagine getting every single piece where it goes, like how much time that has mm-hmm. to take. Like that is, it's impressive. It's very cool. It's amazing. Yeah. One of the things I wanted to ask you was, um, you talked about some of the places that you get the, that the animals come from. Do, do you, 
individuals ever come to you with like a pet or sometimes okay uh that would actually is really popular for uh pet memorial Mm -hmm. which is um something a lot of people are doing right now so instead of um basically the keepsake that they want to keep from their pet's life is the bones in Mm -hmm. some cases uh so pet memorial is actually something that the uh parent company skulls unlimited that they offer so I know that a lot of people are interested in that. Yeah, mm-hmm. that is really, um, there's a, I follow an Instagram account um, of a girl who is a, I think she calls herself like a um, a pet mortician and mm-hmm. she does taxidermy of strictly pets. Like it's, I think it's called um, Precious Creature and she's out of like California, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's, I, I enjoy looking at the stuff that she posts. That's actually a lot more popular, I think, than people realize mm-hmm. is Pet Memorial right now. Yes. Oh yeah. She has like. I want to say she has like 26,000 followers and Mm -hmm. people are constantly sending her animals that they want to be taxidermied and Mm -hmm. all that stuff. So we wouldn't be able to do any of the taxidermy, Mm -hmm. but the skeletons and, um, you know, sometimes owners have, uh, you know, specifications on how they like the animal position. Mm -hmm. And so that's something that I know that they do. Yeah. Oh my gosh. That I like, I can imagine that, especially if you have an animal that, um, this is going to sound so morbid, and I'm sure I'm going to hear back from my mother about this, but my dog has a very specific underbite, mm-hmm. and so I could see how having, like, her skull after she passed would be special because mm-hmm. that is something that's very special to me about her. Yeah. So, yeah. I always get that question. People want to know, well, would you ever do that? Mm-hmm. And it's a tough question to it answer is. when you have to think about it. Yeah. But I think about my childhood cats that I had, and I loved those cats so much. They were mm-hmm. my, my pets growing up, and I had them till I was 19 from the yeah. time I was a little kid. And I think back, and, you know, I have nothing from their right. life. I have a collar from one mm-hmm. of them, but I have nothing. And would I rather have nothing, or would I have rather have the skull? I think I would have rather have the a skull mm-hmm. or a skeleton now. Yeah. And, and so I've taken a lot of time to think about that. I don't know if I could process it myself. Yeah. But it's something that I would definitely want to have because I just have, you know, memories. Oh, yeah, Of yeah, course, yeah. but to actually have something physical, I could mm-hmm. see definitely why it would be comforting and why, you know, it would just be used as, like, a celebration of the animals. Yeah, life. exactly. Like, kind of, I can totally, totally imagine that. Mm-hmm. Um, there was something else I was going to ask you about that. And now my mind just went blank. But um, my other question was, what was the story about Jay, his first Yes, specimen? of course. Uh, Jay actually was seven years old when he found his first skeleton. He was walking in the woods with his brother, and the boys came across a blanket in the woods. And they unwrapped this blanket. There was actually a skeleton inside. They were really concerned. They thought it might even be a human skeleton, a person's skeleton. So they told their father. Their father was able to look at it, and he knew it wasn't human, but he really didn't know what it was. So uh, Jay actually uh, gathered the remains in the skull and went to the library, and he was able to research it based off of the teeth, the dentition of the animal. That would tell you what the animal ate. He was able to look at the measurements of the skull, the cranial length and the cranial width, and actually he discovered that it was the skull of a domestic dog. So someone, what must have happened was someone's pet passed away and they must have left it in the woods Mm -hmm. in this blanket. And then the natural scavengers that exist outside, the flesh-eating beetles uh, would have come. The bones would have been whitened by the sun over time, maybe many, Mm -hmm. many months or even years. And then Jay came across this skull. Well, he actually kept that skull and he found a cat skull a little bit later. And the similarities between the cat and dog, but also the differences really intrigued him. And Jay was one of those kids, I'm sure everybody knows one of a kid like this that has to know everything there was about that animal so he actually had quite the library and was really well read and he actually is completely self-taught 
uh, when it comes to his knowledge of these uh, different specimens. And he was actually formally trained as an auto body technician. And I, I know when we were watching the videos, one of the videos, uh, he says that it's like uh, taking a car and, you know, refinishing it and being mm-hmm. able to have this nice, shiny, you know, yeah. aesthetically pleasing uh, car. And he often compares putting together the skeletons like putting together a car yeah. where every piece has its place that it goes, its function, it's very uh, hands-on, and it's an aesthetic process as well. But wow. he started his small skull collection. It was a, a dog skull he found first, and then a cat skull, and then a skunk skull. Okay. And he started collecting literature and different mm-hmm. books on it. And uh, that's how he learned all of his different scientific names. I'm sure talking to him as a kid would have been really, really impressive. Oh, but, yeah, yeah. Uh, he entered his skull collection into the science fair, and he actually mm-hmm. went all the way to the state science fair and won a superior award. And if you're interested in seeing those first two skulls that he found, the cat and dog, and also his trophy from that science fair, we actually have that on display in our first exhibit okay. in the museum as you walk in on the right-hand side. Oh, how cool is that? So he started just collecting all of these different uh, skeletons as he came across them, but also trying to figure out the best way to clean the animal skull. So he and his father actually worked on trying to figure out the best method to do this. So they did a lot of trial and error. And I know I mentioned trial and error when I was first trying to learn how to clean the skulls. Mm -hmm. But back when he was starting, you know, there was no internet and he was uh, having to do a lot of research on his own and see what other museums might do. And he actually found the flesh-eating beetles that way. So flesh-eating beetles have been used in natural history museums for over 100 years to remove the tissue off the specimens just because it's the very best thing to use. It's what those beetles do in mm-hmm. nature. So uh, they would nev- we would never be able to clean as well as the beetles do because they're able to keep just the most paper-thin bone structures intact while removing the tissue. So it's um, that's one thing that he learned along the way. And then he uh, started helping local zoos clean their specimens for their own education departments. When their animals passed away, the zoo might want to keep that animal so it could use it in its education department. So when they have, you know, thousands of kids from school coming to visit that uh, that zoo a year, they would be able to teach with what we call a biofact. So a biofact is different from an artifact because a biofact is a natural um, material. So a skull is a good example of okay. a biofact or, um, let's see, like a fossil. Okay. So, uh, we'd be able to have the kids touch and hold it. It's a tactile experience so they get to connect with information. So you really get to teach a lot mm-hmm. by teaching with real specimens. Yeah. So he had started, uh, learning different methods to how to clean the tissue or clean the tissue off the skulls then. And then that's kind of what led him up to starting our parent company. Okay. And one of the things we talked about out when we were watching the video um, was that actually you said that humans get processed sometimes. Right. So yeah. we have human skeletons in the museum. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of them come to us from donor programs where mm-hmm. either the individual or their families decide when it's appropriate to donate. We accept those from the donor company, and then we are able to clean the human skeletons. The process is uh, very similar mm-hmm. to that of non-human animals in that um, – there would be a mass tissue removal conducted, mm-hmm. then the flesh-eating beetles would be utilized, then the degreasing and also uh, hydrogen peroxide, and then articulation. So it's just very, very similar yeah. in the process. And those skeletons, do they usually become like classroom skeletons or um, like the ones that are here in the museum, kind of that sort of situation? Right. So the uh, human donations that we mm-hmm. would have would only be available 
to the medical or educational community. So uh, you would be able, if you are a medical or educational professional, you might have access to those types Mm -hmm. of specimens, but those individuals are highly vetted in the process and uh, they wouldn't be available for just the average person. Right. Um, There is, there was this guy, I listened to this podcast recently, like maybe a month ago or so called wild thing. And it's about a reporter, an NPR reporter who found out when her distant relative Grover Krantz died. Oh, yeah. She was related to him and Mm -hmm. he's like the Bigfoot expert and stuff, Mm -hmm. but also an anthropologist. And he had his skeleton. um, You know this because I can tell like you're nodding. (laughs) It's Um, pretty cool. He had his skeleton uh, articulated with his wolfhound. And it's really cool because mm-hmm. you can see it like it's like the dog is jumping it's a huge up on dog him. Too. Yeah, it's a huge dog, and it's a really cool kind of tribute to him. Yeah, like, you know, it's very much characteristic. To be immortalized of in that way with your yeah. companion, and yeah, uh, that the way that those skeletons are articulated in position, mm-hmm. a lot goes into the planning of the yeah. exact positioning. I'm sure it did in that case too, because I know we spent a lot of time trying to figure out what is the best way to position. Well, first of all, what's possible, mm-hmm. and what are we actually uh, as pertain to like the law of physics, what we're right. actually going to be able to do, but then what we're trying to like the message we're trying to convey or what we're trying to teach someone. Cause we don't just want to display an animal, you know, like you might've seen in a book somewhere or another museum. We try to bring some excitement or life to it to mm-hmm. try to teach someone about the animal's life. So for example, if you see a little uh, skunk skeleton inside the museum, you might see them standing on their front two feet with their back legs up in the air or Mm -hmm. if you see a cobra skeleton it might be in its you know signature pose so it wouldn't just be you know laid out and anatomical it would be trying to teach the teach something about the animal that is so cool um one of the things that you showed me when we first came in was the classroom Mm -hmm. and i didn't even know that that was that that existed and um do you want to talk a little bit about what you guys do with educators and that kind of stuff so we teach a lot of different classes at the museum. We teach uh, pre-K all the way up through 12th grade. We even do university level classes and we do adult classes too. So pretty much we have something for everyone and everything from a private guided tour all the way up to a private evening event or even a field trip with uh, Cub Scouts or your local school or church group into the museum. We have uh, educators that teach the Oklahoma academic standards in these classes and our curriculum uses real natural bone specimens for a lot of the classes so if we're teaching let's say a group of uh, veterinary students they actually get to hold and examine real skulls that have maybe an injury or a parasitic infection or maybe a gunshot wound they actually get to hold and examine real specimens that is really cool Mm -hmm. so we teach those classes every single day so uh, when you come to the museum, you actually would, um, depending on what day it is, maybe have the option to sign up for a class or an evening event. They do fill up kind of quickly, depending on which event it is. But uh, we have classes, Every the subject matter focuses on any, everything from uh, like farm animals and what they might eat, all the way up to forensics and human osteology and pathology. So we look at diseases on bone. Uh, so a lot of the classes that we have, it centers around an investigation of some kind, but we always prepare the students with the information that they need in order to complete that investigation. That is so cool. I actually saw the um, event for the forensic um, the adult night mm-hmm. that was like the forensic thing. And it was sold out so fast. Like I was totally, I, I really wanted to go to that and I was like, Oh my gosh. But, um, you guys do that pretty often, don't you? 
Yes, we try to because there's such a demand for the yeah. Forensics Night. So Forensics Night, what we do, it's a private event in the museum. So there isn't um, the general public would not mm-hmm. be inside the museum. We transform the first floor into an event space. So you actually will get to solve your case while uh, maybe a giraffe skeleton is hanging over you or while you're sitting next to a hippo skeleton or a real rhinoceros skeleton. So you're actually on the first floor of the museum. But uh, we have plenty of seating and we set up tables and each table is a different case and you actually have to work with your teammates about usually about four people will be at a table and you have to work with your teammates on solving a case and the cases uh, for forensics night they actually are real homicide cases suicide cases uh, that you have to solve so we teach you a lot about what you can learn about a human skeleton you can learn someone's age you can learn their sex you can learn if they had uh, past injuries or traumas, if those traumas healed, if they had any conditions that affected their bones, and then also maybe how they might have died. Wow. I got to go to that. That mm-hmm. sounds so cool. Oh That's my why they fill up so quickly. Yeah. Everybody always has such a great time. And mm-hmm. I always joke that uh, at the end, they get a chance to actually defend their findings, which is a public speaking oh my gosh. Uh, portion at the end. Yeah. But a lot of people, I always joke with them, you know, that they don't want to public speak. I said that, that the only reason they're here is to public speak, right? Because yeah. it's so much fun. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> you know, by the end of it, everybody's confidence is built up so high. Yeah. And they're all acting out different types of, you know, murder scenarios, which is what a lot fun. of people are interested in. Because they listen to podcasts about, you know, mm-hmm. true crime and they watch TV shows about crime and forensics so they actually now get to apply kind of what they've been learning yeah and it's really fun we try not to take ourselves too seriously um so you don't need to have a really strong you know background in medicine or Mm. pathology or you don't need to be a forensic scientist just for we make it consumable for the everyday person to learn a lot have fun be exposed to different things they've never even thought about before and to just leave with like a great experience That sounds so cool. Mm -hmm. Like that is like what a good idea for just just a fun night and also something that's educational and get like gets the museum out there. And like Mm -hmm. that's just such a great idea. I love that so much. So that's why they fill up about a month in advance. But we do have that's our forensics night. So usually that's uh, Friday night or Saturday night. We did uh, just do one during a Wednesday night just to give people the chance that maybe work on the weekends Mm -hmm. and would be able to come. But we've also started doing a bones and brunch event. Which oh is our gosh. forensics night, but instead of forensics night, it's a brunch. Uh, it, there's a light brunch served in the morning, and then we solve the same cases. And then we also have forensics night dinner party, which is uh, we have a caterer come out and they do a dinner, and it includes the event. That is so cool. That's mm-hmm. awesome. Um, and is there anything else you want to tell everybody about sure. the museum? There is a couple events coming up. Uh, We have one called the Behind the Bones Tour. That is coming up on August 17th, and there's two different sessions for that. The Behind the Bones actually talks about some of the things that we discussed, the private collection. You actually get to see different um, furs. You get to hold maybe uh, and touch a rhino skull that is not on display, or maybe you get to feel the fur of a snow leopard, something that you would never get to do if you just came into the museum on a general admission. And those are led by our educators, so they'd be okay. able to answer any questions you might have. You can take as many photos and videos as you'd like during the tour, and you actually get a behind the bones VIP badge that you get to take home, and okay. it has a it has an elephant skeleton on it. So uh, that's something that's coming up on August 17th. And then we also have a Bones and Brunch on August 25th. Okay. 
And then we have Junior Forensics, which is Forensics Nights, but for teenagers. So oh, if you have fun. a teenager who loves to watch those different TV shows with you uh, and is interested in those homicide podcasts and things like that, yeah. they would love to go to Junior Forensics, and you can actually help them solve cases. It's oh, it's very gosh. similar to Forensics Night in the content that we teach, but just slightly different in the specimens depending on the nature. Because they are, we always tell you know everyone that there is you know personal discretion uh, needed because these are real homicides that did mm-hmm. take place. So some of them do have a, a very violent in nature. So we always warn people ahead of time for that. Wow. And That's we also so cool. have uh, just family days and homeschool events. And of course, um, groups can come anytime and mm-hmm. the, you can schedule a program and class as well. And the museum's hours, it's open from 9 to... 9 to 5, Monday through Friday. And then we also have our Saturday hours, which are 11 a.m. to 5 p.m. And then we have our hours on Sunday, which are 1 p.m. to 5 p.m. Okay. And it is awesome, you guys. You should check it out if you've never been here. It's super cool. Super cool. And Ashley has been so great, like (laughs) so much fun. Um, You are so passionate about this, and it comes across, and I love that. Oh, thank you so much. that That is the best. Um, so I think all I've got for you guys is, um, follow the, oh, the social media. Social media. Yeah. I was going to mention, uh, our Facebook is Museum of Osteology right now for our Facebook. The Orlando Museum is Skeletons Museum of Osteology. Okay. The Instagram is, uh, Skeleton Museum. So uh, we we post constantly. We do a fan of the week too. So if you're ever okay. in the museum, be sure to snap a picture and hashtag Skullfy or Skelfy. Oh my gosh! And we we like to repost a lot. Uh, one event I actually didn't mention was when we just had that we plan on having again, which is a sketching with skeletons. Ooh. That one went really well, and it was just a couple weeks ago. We just started doing it at this location where artists are actually invited to come to the museum, bring your sketch pads. I actually was painting mm-hmm. uh, in the museum for uh, sketching with skeletons, but it's a three hour time period from 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. and it's a quiet time you can spread out we provide tables and chairs and benches for you to put all of your materials you can stay at one spot or you can move around to different places uh, this last time we actually put out some real specimens for artists to be able to sketch and draw not behind glass mm-hmm. and uh, one of the things we brought out was a real chicken skeleton that was put together oh, and then also a whale vertebra which oh. is just a single bone in the spine, but it was huge. Yeah. Oh my gosh. And I, I actually bet. painted that one. I thought it was really cool. Oh my gosh. Um, so one, th- one, there is one other thing I was going to ask you, and this just came to mind. Um, what is the most unusual thing that you've ever seen working here? Like as far as processing or the type of animal that came through or the situation or anything like that? That is such a hard question. Yeah. We talked about how, you know, things that we see and talk about are just totally average day things. So something I might think is um, average is very strange for someone else. But uh, one type of animal we had just been uh, discussing lately was that of the eye-eye. Have I you know heard the, of an eye? Yes, eye? yes. So the eye, eye the, there's a skeleton inside the museum, and it's a complete skeleton. The eye, eye is actually a really interesting animal. Uh and it's spelled A-Y-E-A-Y-E in case you haven't heard of it or want to look it up. But that is a primate. That one is found on the island of Madagascar. And it's unique because it actually has rodent-shaped incisors. So it was actually misclassified as a rodent uh, and then later discovered to be a primate. It has a long middle finger that it uses to tap on. So you've heard of this. It yes. actually uses the same type of hunting technique that a woodpecker uses. Uh, it's a type of acoustic uh, hunting method, but they're able to tap on the uh, branches of the trees and they're able to find the grubs that live inside of them and they use their finger to fish out these grubs and it, their finger actually has a ball and socket joint. 
Oh, wow. I didn't know that part. To be able to do that. Mm -hmm. Oh, my gosh. That's so cool that you brought that up because when I was a kid, I had this book that my grandpa read to me, and it was just this thick, like, encyclopedia of animals. And we always had to look at the I.I. Like, we always had to go back to the I.I. because I thought that was so cool, like, all the stuff he would read me about that. So that's awesome that you mentioned that. Yeah. Yeah. That one's, I think, just a very unusual animal, Mm -hmm. but very interesting to learn about. And that finger is, like, you guys need to look up a picture of them to see, like, because you can't appreciate, like, how long it is until you see it. Like, Definitely. It's really, really interesting. And you can see it in the skeleton, too, yes. exactly how long that, I think it's the third metacarpal that's mm-hmm. just so elongated. Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, but thank you again so much for being on, for having me here. Um, I really appreciate it. And the only things I've got for you guys is follow um, the Instagram at Irioki. Facebook is the same. Then there's the Facebook group. We're trying to get something together with uh, a meetup of some kind. And um, I have got those audiobooks coming for you guys of the short stories that I'm publishing. Um, it should be any day now that I'll be making an announcement. I may even make an announcement the day that this goes live. So um, that's about it. Y'all stay spooky.